0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, as we continue our series this morning in the story of Jacob, we're going to see his family grow, his 12 children. How How do you choose a baby name? It's a hard decision, Like it's a lot of pressure. This kid is going to live with this name for the rest of their lives. My wife is 38 weeks pregnant, we haven't decided on a name yet and we're kind of freaking out. Catherine has her list of names, I have my list of names and they don't match up and we're like really struggling. How are we going to name our kid, there's a lot of pressure there. How do you even choose a baby name, do you go for something original and unique? Like, we don't want another Matt at Anchor, do we? Like, we've already had two on stage. I think there's 20 Matt's out there. We don't want to go for Matthew. Do you go just for a name that you like? Do you go for a name that has a special meaning or significance? Or maybe you hit the sweet spot and get all three, something that's unique, that you like, that has a special meaning? We've had some really beautiful baby names given uh, over the last few months within our church family. We've had Jack Ashby. Banjo Beckman, Noah Nielsen, Isabel Mercy Buchanan. And I asked each of the parents this week why they chose those names. And Jack and Banjo were chosen just because their parents liked that name. Apparently Michelle and Sam Beckman heard Banjo at a park in Kendoble a few years ago and they are like, oh, that's a good name. And now they've stolen it off our list, Banjo was on our list and we can't use it anymore. Uh, What are the other names we've got? Noah and Isabel. They were chosen because of their meaning. So Nick and Cat really liked that Noah in the Bible was a righteous man, faithful before God, that he persevered in building the ark and they want their little Noah to exhibit those same kind of qualities in his life. And Isabel, mercy. Isabel means devoted to God. Mercy means showing compassion to others. And Ruth and Scott Buchanan, our mission partners in the Philippines, want little Izzy to exhibit those same kind of qualities in her life. Well, as we look at the names of Jacob's 12 sons this morning, their names give us a window into this story and into the hearts of its characters. They reveal a deep Bitter conflict between Leah and Rachel. They reveal a bitter family feud mixed up with sex and jealousy and manipulation. And we're going to see that in the middle of all this family dysfunction, that God makes a way through the mess. So let's pray and we'll ask that God speaks to us through his word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbly this morning. We ask that you would give us ears to hear your word this morning, that you would open our hearts to receive it, that you would be changing us and transforming us by your Holy Spirit so that we might live in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at this family feud and this conflict between Leah and Rachel, uh, we're going to look at those two main characters because it takes two to tango in any fight. So we're going to look at unloved Leah, and jealous Rachel. So, if you're taking notes, we're going to kind of do a little bit of a character study on both of those characters. Two weeks ago, Seti Latu taught us about uh, Jacob's two weddings with Leah and Rachel. Uh, you know, Jacob wanted Rachel, but he was tricked into marrying Leah by Laban. The deceiver Jacob was deceived. He didn't want Leah, but he ended up with her as his wife. Uh, We read in chapter 29, verse 30, that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. Now, imagine yourself in Leah's shoes. You're the unwanted wife. How would you be feeling? Rejected? Despised? No one loves me? I'm ugly? Leah desperately wants the attention and the affection of her husband. She's always lived in the shadow of her sister, beautiful Rachel, She longs to be loved. Well, there is someone who loves Leah and sees her in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Jacob doesn't love Leah, but God does. Jacob didn't want Leah, but God does. Jacob didn't choose Leah. But God does. We see here in this story that God loves the brokenhearted. God loves the rejects. God loves the ones that no one else wants. Jacob and the rest of us look at outer beauty as the measure for what's beautiful. But that's not what's beautiful in God's eyes. God doesn't care what you look like. We are all beautiful to God because we're made in his image. God loves us because he made us. God loves the disfigured. God loves the disabled. God loves the down and outs. The ones that we skip over without a second look are precious to God. You are precious to God. Look at the person beside you. Who's who's sitting next to you? They are precious to God. Look in the mirror. You are precious to God. The story of the Bible is that God loves us when we were unlovely, when we were at our worst. He doesn't wait for us to put our makeup on or to lose weight, to hide our blemishes, our defects. God sees us as we are. He knows us completely and he loves us. The climax of the story of the Bible is that God doesn't just love Leah. He knows what it's like to be Leah. God came as Leah's great descendant. A man who had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, the prophet Isaiah writes. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. God knows what it's like to be Leah. He took our ugliness on his shoulders to heal us from our sin and to bring us into God's family, to give us a new name. So you might have been given a name that you've been living by that has shamed and wounded you. Because we don't just live by the name that's on our birth certificates. We believe so often the lies that others say about us. Unwanted, unloved, damaged goods, Failure. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus offers us a new name to live by, a new identity. He says, you are mine. You are loved. You are a child of God. And as God's family, there should be no liars among us. No one who is ignored. No one who is excluded. No one who is rejected. No one who is forgotten no one who is unwanted. This is a place where we all belong, where we all become a family. God's love for us when we were at our worst should lead us to love one another. So God loved Leah and he opened her womb while beautiful Rachel is barren and childless. Leah conceives and gives birth to three sons in verses 32 to 34. And the names are significant. The names are the key to this story. They open up a window into Rachel's heart and show us what's going on. She names them Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Reuben sounds like affliction. She says, God has seen my affliction. Simeon sounds like heard. She says, God has heard that I am not loved. And Levi sounds like attached in Hebrew. At last, my husband will become attached to me, she says. What do these names reveal about what's going on in Leah's heart? Leah longs for the love of her husband. Her great affliction is being the unloved one and she hopes that bearing children to Jacob will at last cause him to love her. Perhaps now my husband will see me. I won't be invisible to him. Now he's going to love me. I've borne him some children. How often do we do this in our relationships? Trying to earn love and affection from others. We try to pretty ourselves up with what we wear, what we do, what we own, what we achieve. We're desperate for someone to notice us, desperate for someone to love us. And this is a good desire. We were made for relationships. We were made to love and be loved. But whenever you put all your hope in a relationship, it's going to crush that person and crush you. Because no person can give the soul all it needs. We're going to leave that kind of relationship disappointed. And when that happens, Tim Keller says we can respond in one of four ways. We can either blame the other person and move on to someone else. And he says that's the path of idolatry and addiction where you're just kind of running around looking to satisfy your needs and desires. If one thing doesn't do it, you're just going to move to the next and looking for satisfaction. And so you blame the other person. Or you blame yourself. You think, oh, there's something wrong with me. I'm a failure, no one loves me. That's the path of self-loathing and shame. Or you blame the world. All men are terrible. And you cut yourself off from relationships and you become cynical and hard. But Tim Keller says there's a fourth option. Rather than the path of blame, you turn to God. As the only one who can satisfy the deepest desires within you. And we see Leah do this with her fourth child. After so much disappointment in her relationship with Jacob, Leah turns to God and says, This time I will praise the Lord. And she gives him the name Judah, which sounds like praise in Hebrew. Leah's character confronts us with the question where are you putting your hopes? What are you looking to to satisfy your deepest desires? Are you looking to relationships? trying to find the perfect partner or expecting your husband or wife to be that kind of perfect person? Are you looking to family? Trying to create a perfect family, a perfect house, perfect home? Are you looking to travel? You're an experienced collector. You're trying to fill your passport with stamps, thinking then you'll be happy. Are you looking to your career? Trying to climb the career ladder. The higher you get up, the happier you'll be. How would you respond to this sentence? I'd be happy if... If what? What are you looking to to satisfy your deepest desires? If I had that, then I'd be happy. C.S. Lewis writes this. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or careers. I'm speaking of the best ones. There was something we've grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The spouse may be a good spouse. The hotels and the scenery may be excellent. And chemistry may be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. Just slipped through our fingers. All our God substitutes leave us dissatisfied. God alone can satisfy the desires, the deep desires that He has placed in our hearts. And so the question for us, church, is will we turn to God? Will you turn to God as the only one who can satisfy those deep desires He has placed within you? I grew up with three siblings. I'm one of three siblings, I'm the eldest. I have my brother Grant and then my little sister, Laura. Grant is two years younger than me, and we had a lot of sibling rivalry growing up. Has anyone else experienced that? And, you know, it was so much competition. Who's the best? And, of course, it was me as the older brother. You know, I was two years ahead of him in kind of all the developmental areas. I was smarter, taller, faster, and... We just had so much conflict. Our house was a war zone throughout our childhood. I remember one time we were playing basketball together and I just m- wiped the floor with him, like just, you know, all, all my moves just killed him. And he was getting so frustrated, he picked up the ball and he threw it right in my face. And I was so angry at him. I chased him around the basketball court, I g- squared him up, threw the ball at him, he ducked. And it smashed the window right behind him. And that was our childhood. So much conflict, so much competition. And you see that being played out here as well. This bitter competition between Leah and Rachel. Except it's not about toys, it's not about sport, who's the best. It's about who, who's going to be the best wife. It's a, it's a conflict about love and legacy. And each of the wives wants what the other has. Leah wants Jacob's love, but Jacob loves Rachel. Rachel wants Jacob's children, but she's barren. How does she respond? Jealous Rachel in chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. Rachel desperately wants children. She sees Leah popping them out every five minutes, but she is barren. She's consumed with jealousy and bitterness. She doesn't want Leah to become the favorite. Now, jealousy is an ugly emotion, according to Jake Peralta. You might have, you might have been there. You know, you, you're feeling f- afraid and anxious. You get that knot in your stomach because you're threatened by someone that's smarter or prettier than you. And jealousy can cause you to do dumb stuff to stay in control. Jealousy almost always comes from a place of insecurity where you're feeling inadequate You're feeling bad about yourself. Rachel has a good desire. Children are a blessing from the Lord, but when that desire is unfulfilled, she descends in a spiral of bitterness and jealousy. Now, I know many of you have struggled with infertility. You desperately desire children. You've been trying for years, and it's been a difficult journey. Feel a burden of sadness and for many of you it's a silent struggle and I want to acknowledge the pain that many of you have experienced because of infertility but there's also a difference between your godly grief the loss that you're experiencing and the bitterness that Rachel is experiencing in this story Rachel is consumed with jealousy towards Leah and anger towards her husband Jacob At the end of verse 1, she says to her husband, Give me children or I'll die. That's a bit kind of dramatic, isn't it? Do those words sound familiar from earlier in the story with Esau? Give me stew or I'll die. Jacob and Esau had had this bitter fight over the blessing of God and now that same conflict is being repeated in Jacob's own family. Rachel is trying to get the upper hand over Leah. Now, how does Jacob respond? He just kind of shrugs his shoulders like, I can't do anything about it. Am I God? I can't open your womb. I can't work miracles. Whereas Leah turned to God, Rachel takes matters into her own hands. In verse 3, she says, Here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Jacob, sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and that through her, I too can build a family. This is pretty, pretty messed up, right? Jacob already has two wives and now they're throwing in a third woman. Like, What are we to make of this? Is the Bible condoning polygamy here? Well, as I was doing my research for this, I was actually surprised to find that the Bible never explicitly condemns polygamy. I thought there'd be a law in the Old Testament saying, thou shalt not have two wives, but it's not there. But As you read through the Bible story, it's clear that polygamy is not God's ideal for marriage. Right at the start, God creates one wife for Adam. One man, one woman joined together in a one flesh union. And then the rest of the Bible and especially the New Testament just kind of assumes monogamy. Jesus in Matthew 19 as he's teaching about marriage and divorce says, they shall no longer be two but one, referring back to that one flesh union. He doesn't say they shall no longer be three or five or six. No, they shall no longer be two, but one. These Old Testament narratives, these stories are subversive to the ancient institution of polygamy. They're revealing that polygamy is morally bankrupt and dysfunctional. As you read through the Bible, all polygamous marriages are disasters. Think back to Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. God Had promised to Abraham and Sarah that he would give them a child through Sarah. And then they kind of went sneakily around the side and tried to get Abraham pregnant with Hagar. And it ends in a mess. So much conflict. Hagar and Ishmael get sent away. It's not good. Think about Solomon, he has 700 wives. 300 concubines and God tears the kingdom out of his hands. The nation of Israel falls apart because of Solomon's sin of marrying all these women. Polygamy is not God's ideal for marriage and this story shows how messed up it really is. Well, Rachel's servant Bilha provides two sons in verses 4 to 8. The first is Dan, which sounds like vindicated and she says, God has vindicated me. The second is Naphtali, which sounds like struggle in Hebrew. I've won a great struggle against my sister, she says. What do these names reveal about what's going on in Rachel's heart? They show us that Rachel is vindictive and jealous. Ah, I've won, I've beaten my sister, I'm the winner. It's not long before Leah too descends into this struggle of jealousy, She's stopped having kids, she's now barren and so she gives her maidservant Zilpah to Jacob and Zilpah has two more sons in verses 9 to 13 and they call them Gad and Asher. Gad means fortunate, Asher means happy and you kind of get the impression that Leah's just like rubbing it in Rachel's face. It's like, you know, hashtag blessed but it's not like really celebrating, oh yay, God's been good to me but it's like, ah, look what you don't have. This bitter feud continues with that famous incident of the mandrake. Everyone's heard of that, right? The mandrake incident? Have a look at verses 14 to 20 and we'll read it together. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Now, in the ancient Near East, mandrakes were associated with fertility. It was kind of like a sex drug. Leah's trying to get more children. And jealous Rachel wants these mandrakes. She's like, give, it, give me your son's mandrakes. And Leah's like, you've already taken my husband. Now you want to take my mandrakes? Come on. Rachel knows that Leah is past childbearing age, so she's thinking to herself, all right, she's not going to have any more kids. How's this for a trade? You can sleep with Jacob tonight if you give me the mandrakes. This is pretty twisted, right? Like they're bartering for sex. They're treating sex like a commodity that you can buy and sell. Jacob comes in from the fields. Leah runs out to him and says, you've got to sleep with me tonight because I paid for it. And Rachel's thinking, well, nothing's going to happen. Leah's too old. She's barren. Nothing's going to happen. And what do you think happens? There's more kids to Leah, two more kids, Issachar and Zebulun in verses 17 to 20. And particularly the name Zebulun just reveals Leah's ongoing struggle to win the affections of her husband. She's like, maybe this time my husband will honor me. Maybe this time he'll love me. How must Rachel be feeling? Like we're 10 kids in now and Rachel is still barren. Has she given up? She desperately wants kids. Nothing's happening for her. Well, the story ends in verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. What Jacob couldn't do, what Rachel couldn't do, what the Mandrakes couldn't do, God has done. God is the one who opens the womb to achieve his purposes in the world. God always makes a way through the mess. Now Rachel interprets this saying that God has finally taken away my disgrace. In the ancient world, infertility was a shameful thing. Your legacy, your identity, your sense of worth was tied to your children and Rachel has been barren. But now... She's finally made something of herself. Now she has a son, Joseph. And next year we're going to follow through the story of Joseph in our series of The Dreamer. And we're going to see these sins of the fathers, this conflict between Jacob and Esau and Leah and Rachel passed down to the children. And this bitter conflict continue between these 12 sons of Jacob over who's going to be the favourite son. And Joseph is the favourite and he's sold into slavery. Joseph means, may the Lord add another, and God does that in chapter 35 with the addition of Benjamin, and we round out the set. The 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel, which will go on to become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Through this messy story of family dysfunction, we see that God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham to make this family into a great nation that will bless the world. Well, what should we do with this story? Like, maybe Catherine and I could use this as our baby catalogue of names. Like, we've already got Reuben. I really like Zebulun. That's on our list. We might end up with that. I liked Asher, but Catherine's like, no, no, not doing Asher. Well, I think we've already got like a Levi and a Simeon and some, some other babies. Let's kind of collect the set, baby catalogue of names. What we see here is that these names reveal something about our human nature. These names reveal the dysfunction that plagues the human race. Our our stories are full of conflict and jealousy and hatred and anger. And it could be very easy for us to just kind of stand in judgment on this and just to moralize this story. And like, they're bad people. Like, they were doing bad things. Let's not be like those bad people. Bible characters and think like we could do a better job but what this story reveals is that there isn't just dysfunction in Jacob's family there's dysfunction in our families as well I am not the perfect father to Eva and Reuben did you know that that I'm not a perfect dad I get frustrated and angry with my kids there is only one perfect father and it's not me I am not the perfect husband to my wife, Catherine. I put myself first, which is the essence of sin. There is only one perfect husband to his bride, and it's not me. The Koneman family is not the Brady Bunch. Our family is not perfect. Whenever there's sinners that live under the one roof, we're going to bump up against each other and experience each other's rough edges. And while I can and should seek to love my children, love my wife well, to be present and engaged physically and emotionally, to nurture and to care for them, my sin will have a negative consequence on my family. We all have issues and wounds from our family, no matter how healthy and functional your upbringing was. Now, I'm not blaming the parents for ruining their kids. All families are a system of actions and reactions and kids can respond negatively even to their parents' best efforts but what we see here is that there is mess in my family, in my life and in your family and in yours no matter how much you try to hide it, no matter how much you try to deny it there is mess in your life and in your family but the good news of this story is that family dysfunction is no barrier for God Because there is another name in this dysfunctional family that is a remedy to dysfunction. There is a name that brings healing to broken hearts. There is a name that brings reconciliation to broken families. There is a name that brings forgiveness to sinners. News of pregnancy spreads pretty quickly in ancient Palestine. A young couple expecting their first child out of wedlock, fearing the disgrace and shame of their community. And an angel appears to them. Fear not. What is conceived in you is from the Holy Spirit and you are to give him a name. You are to give him the name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus. Salvation. Salvation. Jesus came as the great-grandchild of this messed-up family to bring a remedy for our dysfunction. He is the one to whom this story points as the only true and righteous son of Jacob, the only true son of Abraham, the one to whom all God's promises point and are fulfilled. We all look to relationships or family or children or career or a thousand other things to satisfy us. But there is only one name that can shoulder the weight of all the world's hopes and desires. The name of the God-man who made us, who died for us, who rose from the grave and was given the name above every name, the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us in in our mess and dysfunction. But you've entered it, that you've brought a remedy to our sin through your Son, Jesus, our Saviour. Father, we want to come before you with, with the mess that's happening in our lives this morning, the disappointments, the wounds, and we ask that you would bring healing and renewal in our hearts. Father, we ask that you would help us to live not by the lies that we believe that others have told us about ourselves, but that we live out of the new identity that you have given us, the name that you have given us, that we are righteous, that we are loved, that we are children of God. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to minister to us this morning, to renew us and to change us. So please be at work now, helping us to respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.